0: לפני שמתחילים, הודעה קצרה. אם אתם אוהבים את הפודקאסט הזה, אתם כנראה אנשים ממש מיוחדים ומרתקים. אז אם לכם לפגוש עוד אנשים כמותכם, וגם אותי, וגם את רלי, אנחנו עושים מפגש עוקבים שלישי. ביום חמישי, בתאריך התשיעי למאי 24, בין השעות 7.30 ל-11.30, אנחנו הולכים לקיים מפגש עוקבים שלישי בבית שלי בנופים בשמרון. מה בתוחנית? מינגלין וקיבודים אדוקבים רדקים, כמוהם, ארצה שלי, דיון לגבאי ארוץ, ציור בסטודיו ובסופ קומציץ ופיתות על סад. חובה וניתן לעשות את זה בקישור שבתיאור הערוץ, או לחפש את הלינק ב-YouTube. ניסמACH מאוד מודירות אתכם. ועכשיו, לשיחה. All the things that you need to know about the covid about pandemic and what is patagon anyway hi and welcome to my channel my name is dr roy josevic and in this channel i host and speak with the most interesting and influential people and scholars from all around the world to discuss science philosophy theology artificial intelligence and creativity if this is your first time on the channel please consider subscribing hand and hit the bell button and My guest today is Professor John Tregoning from, uh, I just wrote it, from the Imperial College in London. Uh, John Tregoning is an associate professor in respiratory infections in the Department of Infectious Diseases at Imperial College in London. And most recently he published this great book, Infectious Patagon and How They Infect Us. So I, I can't read it because it's upside down. Patagon and how we fight them. So, Professor Tregoning, thank you so much for coming. How are you today? Very good, thank you, and thank you for inviting me to talk to you. Okay, so like I said before, I have a problem with you since your research about diseases and pandemics and all the other things is extremely important, is very interesting, and of course it's relevant, but your meta-research about uh, how you published your book, how you published your uh, uh, your book, and how do you become better in academia might be even more uh, relevant to my audience. So with your permission, we will start with the first and go to the second, okay? So first, this is a great book, and uh, one of the things that you wrote about your book is that you mentioned the word serendipity, because you are a professor of infectious diseases. And I think that being in the COVID area, being a professor at uh, in uh, infectious diseases, is like, sorry for saying it, it's like a dream come true, yes? <laughs> That's an
1: interesting question. It Certainly, yeah, it's changed the way well no it's really hard to explain (laughs) i'm sorry i'm sorry no 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 sort of changed some of it has changed the way we've thought about so some of it is like this is what we expected to happen this is how we thought things would happen and then some of it is like well that's not what i thought would happen that has changed so it's very in it is interesting but there's that sort of curse about may you live in interesting times where actually when you are in the thick of it and it is quite exhausting but it yeah fascinating but exhausting
0: so i i just want to mention one thing that uh, may you live in interesting time consider a curse in chinese uh, literature or in chinese tradition so interesting is only uh, nice in retrospect in retrospective not during what you did so let's start and, and dive in to the science i want i i i want to uh, to read out loud a quote from your book, and I think that this will be the best place to start. A disease is not the same thing as the thing no, it's not the same thing as the thing that causes it. Diseases refers to symptoms. So COVID-19, which we know as the COVID virus, is <laughs> the uncatchy name for disease caused by similarity, uncatchy SARS-CoV-2 virus. So What do we need to know about the distinction between diseases and the things that causes diseases? This is just like phenotype and genotype or something else? It's something more. I think
1: if we think about the pathogen, which is the agent that caught the infectious agent. So it could be a virus, it could be a bacteria. If we're thinking about uh, SARS-CoV-2, it's a virus. That agent, you can be exposed to that agent and not get sick, or you can have the agent, you can have the virus, it can replicate maybe in your nose and make you mildly unwell. It's only when the it stacks so that the virus may be more virulent, your immune system may be compromised in a way, or your lungs are compromised in a way that you get these sort of severe disease. And that's why I think going back to your saying, you know, living through this interesting time, is you see this whole spectrum of disease in lots of different people. And because we're measuring who's getting infected, we're seeing infections. So people with detectable virus everywhere, but we're not seeing sick people everywhere. And that's changing with the vaccines as well. So people are still maybe getting infected, but they're not getting as severe sick. So you've got these kind of two things separating between agents that can make you unwell if you're, if you're that way sort of predisposed Versus the kind of the disease that can that can come, and and just one final bit on that: the the disease actually can be quite similar between different pathogens. So if you get a bad flu infection into your lung or a bad uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection into your lung, you'll have a similar kind of um, symptoms. You'll present with difficulty to breathe, pneumonia. So there, there's similarities in the kind of body's response, especially when it's, things are going wrong, depending regardless of the virus.
0: Okay, so let's say that I'm having a PCR test, and according to the PCR to the PCR test, I'm COVID positive. So, but I have no symptom whatsoever. Okay, and this is what we call in Israel uh, or, or in the world. Uh, non-symptom. We, we call it asymptomatics uh, patients. So they may they can uh, infect other people but they don't get the symptoms. they don't get the, hard, uh, the the cold, the flu, you know the difficulty in breathing. But what science know about what distinguish people be, between getting the symptoms and not getting the symptoms? Is it pure luck? or something inherent different in their immune system, in their biology, that make them uh, uh, immune to the symptoms of the disease?
1: So there'll be, I guess it's like a, a, maybe like a computer, it's like a gating thing. There are multiple gates through which things have to go in order for the disease to happen, so... um, the first is probably the amount of virus you breathe in so if you breathe in one one tiny virus particle you're less likely to get sick than if you breathe in 100,000 so that's the, the dose is then important the second thing is might be how to, uh, like the time of day so we know that the immune system is more active at different times of the circadian rhythm it changes so it may be the time of day that you're exposed or how tired you are or how dry the mucus in your nose is. So there's lots of kind of barriers and the virus has to kind of overcome all of those barriers. So we know things that will tend to predispose people. So if you have um, COPD, so the condition that follows um, smoking throughout your life. So if you've damaged your lungs through um, smoking, you're more likely to get sick. Or if you have diabetes, you're more likely to get sick or a heart condition. So we know things that may predispose people to get more sick and age age seems to be the major driving factor. So those things, all of those things kind of add up. And I don't think, what we don't have is enough knowledge to be able to say, if we took me and just measured all of those bits and pieces and put them into an algorithm, we could say, this is how sick you'll get. And that's that's the kind of, you know, that's probably quite a long way in the future, but that'll be a fascinating thing to be able to do just to kind of put all these variables in and say, this is but
0: it, but 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 this is basically a chaos theory. It's a complex dynamic systems that have many many parameters. And you said it for yourself. You said it even the time of the day. So let me get it straight because it is fascinating, and this is the first time that I hear this. So I might get uh, the virus at I don't know 10 a.m. where when I'm fully alert and I'm I and I am not tired and I eat properly. And then my body, like going to uh, not let the virus go into the gate. And then even though I will get the virus later at 10 p.m., yes, when I'm very tired, the fact that the, that the initial encounter with the virus were, when, was when I was very healthy means that I developed like a, a natural vaccine. I think it's
1: probably more just, it has repeated, it's repeated attacks against the same thing and if you, if the attack in the morning bounces off, it doesn't necessarily mean that the attack in the evening will will also fail, so I think it's, the more, I I think what it tells us in terms of exposure is, the more exposures you have, the more likely you are to get infected, so that's where masks and the non-pharmaceutical interventions and good ventilation help because you're just reducing the number of chances that the virus gets to roll the dice and, and get into the body.
0: Oh, okay. But, but,
1: but yeah, I think it, you're right. I think there is this sort of chaos, chaos element to it. There's so many variables that it is very hard to predict. But I don't think, uh, then coming back to the public health side, if you, everything we can do to put more barriers in the way is going to reduce the chance of disease. So vaccines and good hygiene and good good underlying health, all of those will help you in kind of swing the balance in your favor.
0: Okay, so let's move on to chapter four in your book and it's microbiome. Now I had on the show, Professor Ravid Trausman from Weizmann uh, Institute in Israel, and he's is a cancer researcher. And what they discovered that even that the microbiome, that the, the germs in your, I don't know, it, in your stomach has a great impact on what we called uh, cancer treatment so so please uh, shortly could you explain what microbiome is and how it affects your possibility or chances to get diseases in the context of the covid of the of the covid so the
1: microbiome refers to all of the uh mostly bacteria let's, let's say bacteria so microbiome refers to all of the bacteria that live on or inside your body so you have bacteria on your skin you have bacteria in your nose you have and but the majority of your bacteria live in your guts so um and they help you digest food they help you stop in getting secondary infections they help me- particularly metabolism but they also seem to train your immune system so if you count the number of cells of bacteria in your body versus the number of cells, you there's about the same number. So we pro- we in some views we're like a, a massive taxi for bacteria rather than just a, a kind of human body. Yeah. Um, what do they do for COVID? I it, it it's quite there does seem to be some correlation between maybe certain bacteria types in the gut and better immune health. And it's certainly if you have um, probably what's best known is the the it's a bit like um a jungle the 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 lower the diversity the less healthy the ecosystem so the more different types of things again
0: again have. the lower the diversity the lower the diversity of the bacteria the different kinds of bacteria in your gut in your body so the lower the diversity
1: the the more probably the the worse outcomes are you want to have like a, a broad range of different things that can respond to different uh, outcomes but it, it it's still very early in our understanding of how these work and they're, they're difficult studies to do and to do well because it's quite easy because there's bacteria everywhere you know there's bacteria on my coffee cup and and it's quite and, and in my science for pets and so it's quite easy to get contamination and kind of misunderstand things so I I haven't seen anything like a smoking gun a thing that says this is the one this is the single bug you need to be better but it's it's more diversity eating more healthily will will all add to that and and kind of lead to better outcomes
0: from from what i understand and i spoke with ravid it likes it it seems that the microbiome is like an explanation mechanism but not a prediction mechanism since there are so many factors even what happens to you during a during birth and in in the birth canal and and the 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 fact that you have a dog or you don't have a dog and your environment, so the microbiome is affected by so many factors that you cannot control. So it's like like a like a unique fingerprint of the person and your ability to change it or to alter it in a specific manner, just like you said, is very limited nowadays. Am I correct?
1: Yeah and I think it can change and it's quite fluid you know I think if you measure it at different times of the day it changes there was a, an amazing paper which linked you know coffee intake and the type of bread you eat and y- there are so many factors in changing all of these things I think to make sustained changes in it I think is very targeted changes it is, is very difficult I think where it has been really interesting is in this um fecal microbiome transplant so they they what we do know is that if you take a lot of antibiotics, you you kill a lot of the microbiome in your guts, and that can have uh, long term effects and make you more susceptible to an, a bacterial infection. So if you can reseed it after the antibiotics, you then protect yourself against these secondary infections. So have keeping it kind of relatively diverse seems to be healthy.
0: By the way, and I think that many people say there s- there is a, a, a joke in Israel that uh, flu. Uh... You can cure it with antibiotics in seven days. But if you don't take antibiotics, it will go after one week. So basically what we say is that the natural immune system of the body is extremely efficient. And many people say that even in the context of the COVID, where people get the immune, people get the vaccine, the natural vaccine after being ill, after being sick and they develop the vaccine, this vaccine is much more sustainable for different kinds of Im- mutations. So is it true that the natural I- natural vaccine or the natural immune system will be better in certain aspects over, the, over the, the Pfizer vaccine, for example? So, so I think the first important
1: thing is if we go back to our not understanding how who's going to get sick is that if you're saying it, the, the in, infection with the virus you are rolling a massive dice of because of, you might get sick so you know that infection could very easily you may have a genetic susceptibility that you didn't know about and it could put you in hospital so that's a very high risk strategy the second thing is the viruses make anti-immune factors. So they, the way that viruses infect you is by turning off your immune system. And we think that some viruses like coronaviruses actually dampen the immune memory. So they have, they make a protein that targets the immune memory and basically shuts it down, makes your memory less good. So on those levels, natural infection is probably less effective because you've got the high risk and you've got the kind of a, a rapidly diminishing response. What the vaccines do is that they give you the immune memory without ever being exposed to the pathogen. So you never get sick and you might get you know, the mild infection, but you're never going to get the severe disease. And the vaccines are protecting against severe disease. And I think they give you a stronger, more controlled response against infection.
0: But in Israel, we see that we had like the first uh, shot of the vaccine and then the second and then the third, which were called the booster. And then we have now have a Omicron, which is like the fifth or the fourth. I, I don't count yet the fourth version of the virus. So it might, it's it, it, it like we just tweet, and it we just tweet the very specific modification of the virus each time and each time. The immune system—it's like it's it, it like thieves and cops. less each time the virus become more and more sophisticated. So, what about this? Isn't like a? Are we going to be the, the uh, like, and and another vaccine and another v- vaccine for for the next ten years? Or, or what do you think is going to happen?
1: Yes. Yeah, so that's it is an interesting question. So. With the vaccines and the boosters, so the, the three doses that one would have had in Israel, they're all the same thing. It's not, they've not changed the vaccine at all between those three. So it's, it was targeting the original strain that emerged in 2019. And it's, it's basically, what it, it, what happens is, each time you get vaccinated, it pushes the amount of antibody up a level. So the first, you're here, you have your second one, it goes to here, you have your third one, it goes up again. And that is it come again comes back to this that idea I was talking about about putting more gates in the way the more antibody you have it will soak up more of the virus even if the antibody is less efficient because the virus is changing you, you are still soaking up most of it and that will again reduce your risk of severe disease the virus is evolving um, and that is natural virus because it's a so it. Um, it's, an, it's what's called an RNA virus. So it's the genetic material in it is a bit more leaky. So when it, it's like, you, if you photocopy a photocopy and you keep on copying it, may, instead of going back to the original, you make more and more copies, you get more and more errors in, in the document. So the viruses make more and more errors. The more people who are infected, there's more chances of these errors happening. And some of those errors, most of those errors will kill the virus, it will be bad for the virus. A few of them are gonna give it a selective um, advantage. And what we don't know is what is dry, what's the selective pressure? Because we, we don't know whether, if it, it, so if it did emerge in Southern Africa where the vaccine coverage is low, it's probably emerged because people had previous exposure, natural immunity. So if vaccine coverage was universally high, there would be fewer viruses and few ch- fewer chances to mutate.
0: Yes, but those viruses will can overcome the vaccine now because if all the people in Europe, in Israel, or most of the people in Europe and Israel, or in the U.S. have the vaccine, so any modification that will survive this stage means basically that it can survive the gates of the current vaccine. Am I correct? It, well,
1: no, because it's not binary. It's it's a it's a continue like the if the the best graph i've seen about protection is like a basic sort of ss S shape but with very noisy intervals so some people are high some people are low and the vaccine is going to give you noisy protection it's not going to be binary protection so i think it will still give you protection and the more antibody you have even though they're suboptimal like having 10,000 suboptimal antibodies is better than having 1,000 suboptimal antibodies so it, that it will continue to give protection what may be required is new like a bit like with flu where the virus does change season on season we may get to a point where we do need seasonal targeted boosters against this virus but we've we just honestly don't know at this point because there's not been a i mean there are endemic coronaviruses there's like human coronaviruses out there that that do circulate all the time and cause kind of colds and things. So we don't, I don't think we know what is required next. I think it's prudent to look into making or testing new vaccines against the new strains as, as an insurance policy as uh, vaccine immunity
0: went. Okay, so with your permission, let me go to another quote from your book, uh, which is, while infectious have coexisted with humans throughout our evolution, pandemics are a feature of civilization okay and the world pandemic means uh, all people yes people need to believe in close enough proximity to allow the infection to spread within communities and have good enough contact between communities to spread it more broadly and we have seen it i think vividly during the covid pandemic where we started in china and then after two or three months it spread throughout Europe, Israel and the US. So are we in, in a way, if we take the Spanish flu from like 100 years ago, our world today is much more connected. And therefore, the Spanish flu influence only in certain borders. So basically, what you mean is that we are much more susceptible to pandemics. And disaster like this as we get more and more connected as our world become flat as thomas friedman uh, put it yes
1: I, I think the risk of the spread is is higher but the tools that we have to deal with them are better i think that if both things are developing at the same time the sort of uh, you know this matt ridley's idea about the spreading of ideas and how quickly ideas spread what if you compare back to 1918 We didn't know that influenza was caused by a virus. We didn't have a vaccine. We didn't have the supportive like ICU. We didn't have the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Like the steroid drugs that are very useful in the kind of severe diseases. So the the knowledge has increased at the same time as the kind of human population kind of increasing number. But so, yes, in general, we are at greater risk because of the interconnectivity.
0: And we didn't have a test state, which was Israel. that, like, it's like a giant lab experiment, never, never been conducted before. It was like a a, a test a state that Pfizer said, okay, let's test, let's test the vaccine on the people of Israel. So it, I think that it gave not, us a lot of information, no?
1: I, I mean, the vaccine was tested in all of the vaccines had a massive phase three efficacy style uh, trial before they went into the country. So they were tested globally for safety and protection before they were then licensed into different countries. So I, I don't, I, 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 I hope, I, I, by being an early adopter, Israel then ha- generated more more of the early data, but the test happened, I, I, yeah, I don't like the phrase test state. I don't think that's a, a fair description. I think- Okay, 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 I'm sorry. No, 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 it's fine. I it, it, Yeah, sometimes these things sound
0: i'm from israel so you know i i I just want to raise to my country (laughs) this is basically it okay but you know there is a chapter from your book and this chapter says which leads to the big questions and it says why don't we get sick all the time and this is a very important question because if you get all, if you get the bacteria, if you get the disease, if you get the viruses from the air, and each breath of air, it's approximately half liter of air, how come that we don't get sick all the time? This is a very important question.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's amazing. I, I We've done some research where we were looking at the number of, we, we swabbed uh, 200 children and measured viral infections in them. Uh, and 20% of them had what would be deter- what would be called a viral pathogen, um, but they weren't sick. So there, there are these viruses and bacteria out there all the time. And I think it speaks to how good our defenses are in protecting us, but also how um, well-evolved, and that's a bit of a clunky phrase, but how the viruses have evolved to us—the the kind of things they do to get past these barriers. And when you sort of look at some of the, microbiology research where people examine single proteins in bacteria and show that the single protein has all these different functions just to help the bacteria win win in its battle it, it's it's a remarkable kind of uh, um evolutionary arms race the the i think i talk about the image of the red queen hypothesis in alice in wonderland where they're both running at the same speed but nothing changes and it's, i think it's some of that it is yeah it um and we don't have the answer. And I think that is what drives my lab's research: is to think about well, what is it that happens in those times when you do get infected?
0: Because because it's when you think about it, it's it's like a it's, it's so unprobabilistic. The probability of not getting sick is so low that how come? It's like a a, a living miracle. So I I want to go you uh, from my perspective represent the the academia the university and many people say listen we invest tremendous amount of money in academia nsf isf horizon giants of billions of dollars in euros and when we needed a straight answer from academia and all the academia joined together to give us something The answer wasn't there and we got the answer from pfizer which not part of the academia it's it's not so my question and i I spoke on on the channel with several biologists that mentioned this very thing that how come we didn't get the answer or or, or, uh, so do we do we need to rethink our biology and microbiology department after the pandemic that we didn't get as the as the public as government what we needed them after so so many years of investing tons of money yeah so so i'll I'll come back with a
1: straight no on that i think that is a that's a misinterpretation of what happened i'll give you a number okay why big no So the big note, so let me go through a number of examples why I think the academic contribution to the COVID pandemic is enormous. The first is, uh, if we look at the Moderna vaccine, the Moderna vaccine uses what was called a pre-fusion stabilized form of spike. So the spike protein, that's the bit of the virus that the virus uses to get into our cells and the thing that the vaccine targets, is basically like a spring up umbrella. It has, a, it has a compact form that it lives in on the virus and then the open form that it uses to get into cells. That compact pre-fusion, the form before it opens up, is the more immunogenic, is the one that you want to get protection against. Understanding that knowledge came from a group at NIH by Barney Graham and um, Jason McClellan studying as an academic group a different virus and their knowledge, their 20 years of research and knowledge, went into the design of the of the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine so without that academic group we wouldn't have the Moderna vaccine. The second part of the Pfizer vaccine was that it was developed by um it, it has it's an MR, it's made of mRNA and mRNA when you look at uh, when your cells see it says this is this is foreign this is, and mo- normally your body would say because this is foreign like because it thinks it's an infection would stop the mRNA being turned into proteins. So so how I I need to drill down basically mRNA encodes the proteins, your body would turn that off. There was a group called uh, Cathy Carrico, who works at um, BioNTech now, spent 20 years as an academic researching how to trick the body into making mRNA vaccines. So the two key bits of academic, or two key bits of underpinning knowledge into the mRNA vaccines, came out of academic research. And both of them were kind of quite somewhat niche and wouldn't have been funded in industry. I mean, the third one, if you look at the AstraZeneca vaccine, that is all built out of research done at Oxford University over a 20 year time span. So all of this knowledge, what happened in the last year was the, was the tip of the, was basically the tip of the spear of 20 years of research. And the 20 years of research came from academia. So without that, open blue blue sky science space we wouldn't have the knowledge to build the things that we need in the last two years so i think no academia can't make a factory where you make vaccines but yes they can make the knowledge that then feeds into the into the
0: factory at the end okay so with your permission because i think and from from and from the passions that i get from you this is an important question and let me tackle this from another perspective, with your permission. And, and the other perspective is no vaccine and no scientific progress, progress is possible without research, without science. No, no question whatsoever. Now, the, the only question is what is the best or the most efficient platform for specific scientific progress? in the field of ai nowadays it is the big tech all the big research is conducted in the big tech or most of the big research is conducted in the big tech in the area of the transistor it was bell laboratories okay the bjt the transistor the diode all the other things were conducted not in the university. It was conducted by great experts, great scholars, great professors, but not in the platform of the university. Okay? But wasn't, wasn't, and
1: just to inject, wasn't Bell Labs run like an academic department? It didn't have a specific- Bell
0: Labs run like academic department and Google research run like academic department and Facebook research run like academic department Mm. very well, but, in uh, but there is there is something different because google fund itself and facebook funds itself so it is extremely important to get the distinction now we say okay we need basic science and basic science is unprofitable okay because you just aim to a very long very far away target and then you try and maybe you get it and maybe you don't so maybe We want academia to focus mainly on basic science, just like you said, like two 20 years research that eventually leads to what we need. And of course, without Maxwell Maxwell, uh, equation of uh, electrodynamics, we wouldn't have anything. It is important. We need the academia, but the platform that we call academia, universities, grants, etc., is is not efficient in delivering things to the dole, to delivering the next vaccine, to delivering something that is working. What and about no, this perspective?
1: And I agree. I don't, I don't, I think academia has two, I think it's an ecosystem. You can't you can't have industry without academia. The, the, the two things and, and so I think that there's, there's kind of a there is a mergy place in the middle of early phase one trials, but uh, to, to my mind, academia is about generating a number of ideas, many of which won't work, which, so, which so therefore, it's the kind of, it's almost like the, the, the mutation that drives evolution. So you're having all these mutant ideas come up, most of them fail, but some of them will then feed into the industrial pipeline. The other thing I think academia does, which is really important is that it trains the people to go into industry. It trains the people to go into policy. So we, we can use research as an educational tool. So at that point, you're then getting new ideas that may or not be important, but also you've trained somebody who can then go and be a scientist thinker in any number of different jobs. And I, I'm strongly, I, I, you know, I think what I do as a, uh, a supervisor is training scientists, not training academics. And And I look at the kind of, People who've been through my labs, they, they, one's a medical doctor, one works for the government, one works for a funder, one works for a science writer. So there's lots of different paths that I think the academic model then contributes as well. Ideas and people, I think, is what we generate.
0: But I am I'm a I'm professor of computer science. And as a computer science, many, many companies in the, in, in the industries says that learning to program in academia is not good because academics don't know how to really program something that works so in in other words we train our students to become better scientists or better thinkers but we don't train them uh, we don't give them the proper tools and those proper tools are given to them in the companies and the corporates that they are working and i would argue that this is similar in pfizer that if you uh that what you get when working in such a a company like Teva or Pfizer is different and in some aspect inherently different than what we get in the academia lab. So with your permission, let me ask you, uh, do you think that something in the model of training, in the model of syllabus, in the model of funding academia in, in your department should be changed after what we know after two years of the pandemics? Or would you say, no, just keep it the way it was? So, so in terms of training, and I think universities are moving
1: there, is we are accepting that the knowledge of the world is in our mobile phones now. You don't have to learn the Krebs cycle or, or you know, whatever it is. You don't have to learn that into your head anymore because you can look it up. But you do need to be learning critical thinking and experimental design and planning, and those are the skills I think, in terms of the education, is what we are doing both at a undergraduate and a postgraduate level. In terms of funding, uh, I don't know. I mean, I of course would argue for more funding. You want you want
0: John? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's more funding the two <laughs> uh, uh, but
1: Yeah, I, I think it's been fairly. I, I don't think. I don't think academic academia failed in in the in the pandemic because I think across the board you've got the mod epidemiologists and the modellers and the vaccine people. So I, I think it, it 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 by and large works. Um, and I'm I, I don't know. I I would I yeah. I I think it's a good return on investment.
0: Yes, because in the last chapter of your book you say and and you speak about you know. Uh, uh, the balance between companies and academia and what they should do but we with your permission because we are uh, it, it was extremely fascinating but i want to move on to the second thing and what we spoke what we talked about so far was you know how academia in fact or influence something that is relevant to the public and you most recently mm-hmm published this book, uh, the, the books that we are talking about, Infectious, Pathagon, and now we find them. And something very interesting uh, happened. You also wrote a column in Nature Careers, how I wrote a pop science book. Now, my, uh, and this is a extremely well written, very funny, <laughs> very funny, and First of all, what is Nature Career? It's, it's, like of, it's like a Nature article that you have there? but it...
1: so, so Nature, uh, the journal, has kind of two bits. The, the, kind of, the main journal has two bits. So it has the kind of magazine-y, newspaper-y side of it, which does the, the articles and the careers advice, as well as the scientific writing. And I've been working with the team on the career side for, for a, a number of years about writing different aspects of uh, being a, of what it's like to be a scientist and how and, and different challenges in academia and how to overcome them. So I was very lucky during the pandemic because I wrote um, through them, I wrote a weekly diary of what it was like to, to live as an academic through COVID. Um, and that was a lot of fun, but it was quite a challenge because I was writing like every week you'd be writing one article. Editing the one from the week before and, and thinking about the next one, so it was a, it was a, a very different sort of uh, intellectual challenge to the normal job.
0: No, but when but when you published in Nature Career, it's not like published in Nature. So, oh no. yes. It, well, it comes apparently
1: it, it appears it's cited on PubMed as a Nature paper, but it's not. No, it's not. A, it's not a primary. <laughs> it's not a primary research paper. And it, it
0: might it, be my only chance to go into <laughs> Nature, so exactly. this is why I'm asking. Okay, <laughs> but but. It, it, We know that Faraday wrote The Story of Candle as addressed to youth. We know that the publisher of The Origin of Species told Darwin, make the book clearer. I want to address the public. But we know nowadays that, uh, that, uh, that scientific articles are written in a way that are inaccessible to anyone outside the realm. And this is causing, it's like, it's it's a bad policy because we separate science from society. We separate science from the people. Most people who are not in the field or not in academia have never, never accessed Google Scholar before. I know it's it's like mind-blowing because we work with Scholar all the time. But just when I became a graduate student i knew that such a such a website was exist so and i think that this is part of us to blame the scientists because we don't write clear enough and i think that and and it is very what i didn't like about your about your title is this is a pop science book the pop because it is fun it is full of anecdotes. It's funny, and and why being fun, full of anecdotes, and engaging means pop science book. Mm.
1: So I, I think I, I think the scientific paper is a very specific tool. It's not. It's and it is. It's a peer to peer tool, isn't it? It's not for, about engaging public. What I've always tried to do then is write a separate article. As a lay companion piece that then explains the science in a way that you know my parents and my, my family could then understand and see so i, I don't I, I don't think it's possible to change the scientific paper in a way to make it more because you're not you're not necess- you're trying to communicate in, information to a, a different audience. so I think what we have to do is get better at communicating to both audiences and also then to value the communication to a broad audience i you know i think if you take uh, the the drivers of the academic career are bringing money produce papers they're not about how well you communicate your science so it's it's something that we do on top of our day jobs rather than kind of as part of our day jobs
0: yes and this is bad because it's like grants are not part of your papers now i wrote for a uh, full lay audience of four books which are which i invested my time and my life in those books and those book i th- both those books or part of them influence the lives of people much more than the papers that i've published in google scholars and let me disagree with your permission because i you said you need to address two kinds of audience you need to address the peer review your your peer scientists that you not need to tell them listen this is what i done this is w- this is what the results are please continue from there and this is how science builds uh, one one brick at a time okay we, which is great but i will argue that this is not the case and we we see in my discipline and in electrical engineering that nowadays People try to be more complex, more vague. Instead of taking very simple equations, they just fill some some of them fill the paper or fill the page with unnecessarily mathematics. You know, just to make sure that they, if the paper is un is hard to understood, it must be very deep. And I will tell you even more. That the tendency today and you also know it is to publish short and shorter papers because people don't have the time to read so much and and so in other words what you describe is like the utopia okay i need to tell you okay what i've published and why it is important and so you can move on yes it's like a a stick race uh, i don't know how you say it like a, a poll race but this is not the case, and many articles, many scientific articles, are extremely hard to read. So, what can we do to change it? You change it in your blog, and I change it in my writings, and I try to be, you know, better in my writing. Let me tell you a story. Uh, Andy Randy Pausch, you know, the the, the distinguished professor from Cornell University, from Carnegie Mellon, who passed away from cancer. Uh, he was he did it his tenure. He, he, he did it sabbatical in Disney Imagineering. And after Disney Imagineering, after one year of Disney Imagineering, he they had to had to publish the paper. And the guy from Disney Imagineering said, listen, this paper is so pale. Add the picture. And they added the picture before the abstract. They added the picture before. And the people at the journal, well, are they allowed to do it? Why? Do we need to even say, are we allowed to add pictures? Why why can't we access, why can't we ease the access of our papers even to our peers? Because it's hard even to our peers to get uh, to read our papers. What do you think? No, I agree. I
1: I think there's a lot of bad science writing. But it's it's hard, right? It's taking me. 20 years to be able to write a science paper okay-ish it's just it's a skill it's and you have to practice and you have to get good feedback and I think you're right I think the pressure I think there's such a volume out there that it doesn't give the editors the chance to edit I think if you go to some places I had a very positive experience with a reviews article where the editor edited every line and, and worked with me so I think when editors are acting In the old in in, like a newspaper editor you get a much better product than when you get an editor just acting as a gatekeeper in terms of the science so i think you
0: get much better training
1: yeah yeah because you can see what works and if you get some feedback and say you know don't don't just say the same word over and over again i think there is a and and there's also this I, i don't know if you see it but in i feel sometimes people like you say obfuscate they use complicated words where a simple word would do, and I think, like I just did. So I think, I, I think there's a bit in writing where it's just like, just say it was rather than and so we saw that this thing. I was like, well, that's just not good writing.
0: Yeah, hey, it's not used. It's like a- academia. It's like we. I don't say I used. I say I utilized. And we don't say eh, 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 eh. it was. It was. It was a passive And if you see, you know, Stephen King has some rules about good writing. And Stephen King is a very good writer. Yes, he's like the most read a uh, author in the 20th century. And basically, I think all the things that he describes as good writing are like in academia, are like in journal writing. And you see all this complex sentence as a uh, just a second, what we are trying to do. Okay. I want to do this. And I I I I you know add some humor, add some quotes. And some, You know, all the quotes and the anecdotes that you uh, add to your book are so important because they let me hold, it's like a hook to get the idea, to get the theoretical part. And it's extremely important. And we rarely see them in scientific writing. We see them only in the best scientific writing, but not in all of the scientific writing. So my question is, because you wrote a book about science, you said in one of the in one of the tips, that save many factual data, many anecdotes as as you can, because they will spice up your writing and will be uh, important as well. So my question to you is, how do you save and file your anecdotes? Because we get like many anecdotes, and 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 and, and we read something that wow, listen, this is good, and this is good, and this is good. But how do we save them? In a way that we can restore them efficiently afterwards
1: uh, yeah uh i don't i uh yeah i didn't have any system they were just things i think they were just things that made i i had enough of there either things that had made me laugh previously and i really remembered them or i had enough of a stub that i could then search them on google so i think those my search terms are probably quite weird at the moment like what's the most you know what's the longest tapeworm or what's the most you know how much because I remember going to so I remember going to talk about um somebody doing human deliberate uh cholera challenge and he was talking about the volumes of fluid that came in. I couldn't remember the exact number, but I could then piece it together. It was, it was a bit of a kind of uh detective work to just try and find the bits from my brain from earlier. So maybe writing them down would have been better, but I just kind of relied on my imperfect memory.
0: Now, another thing that you said that you had to write 90,000 uh. 90000 words and you said okay 90000 words meaning basically 3000 words each week but when you had a you have a diary yes yeah, like a you kept track of the words that you that you were writing each week and most of the weeks the total numbers of words were less than 3000 and which became that the you know the weekend became very very intense now, in retrospective, what could you have done differently? And what tip could you give to reach this like 3,000 words, Or do we need to think it otherwise, think about it differently? So
1: my uh, friend and, and uh, well, the sort of writing mentor who got me into it is is Professor Dan Davis at Manchester. And he's written three books. And I know that oh, certainly he does take sabbaticals and just takes steps out and goes and does that and lots of my friends were like well I can't I don't know how you're juggling it maybe you should just go and and, do it. and so maybe it would have been better to have taken blocks of time of being a bit braver about saying to my line manager can I take these blocks of time as a sabbatical and take it off um, but there was something about the the pace and the having to do it that meant I didn't ever have time to get uh, bogged down and worried about it so i because it was so like you have to do it, I didn't there was no writer's block because there was no time for writer's block. so I don't know. It would be interesting to try it the other way where you have I have like a luxurious you know month in my calendar where I can just write, but I'd be worried I'd just fritter it no, away. <laughs> no,
0: no, but you know but but deadlines deadlines are extremely important. I know I think that Terry, Terry project has a saying. I love deadlines and the sounds they, that they make when they pass by me, <laughs> something like this. Now, another thing that I'm curious about because I also write, now this is your field of research, your field of expertise, but sometimes during, a writing, a, during the work of, of a book, you, you get to a niche that you are not expert at. And now the question is, how much do I need to dive in and do research in order to elaborate my writing, my understanding. Should I add uh, or in in other words, should I add another page or another chapter or another section? I started my book about artificial intelligence and I said, okay, I need to have a, 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 a small chapter about human intelligence because artificial intelligence basically wants to want to simulate human intelligence and i start reading about human intelligence just to have like 20 pages and it, it eventually it came out with 400 pages because <laughs> the subject was so interesting so immense I, I couldn't summarize it in 20 pages so i had 400 pages so i you sure that this thing also happened to you so what's your take about how much dive in into a side niche
1: yeah, so I I'm just a slight different answer to start with. The thing I found the most challenging were the bits that I knew most about because I couldn't work out where to crop them. So the, the, the immunology chapter does run on a bit when I was much more strict on the ones where I, I knew less. The second thing that helped was that I have access to experts in all of these fields because I work with them. So I could just send a chapter to somebody and say, have I missed anything on there? And the third, I, I don't know. I think I, I I I went as far as I was interested, and then 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 I could just pick out the funny and the interesting and the the, the important. So I'm sure there are things I've missed, and I'm sure for people like I had friends who were like, oh, you didn't mention this passage. And I was like, no. And they have you seen Blackadder where he's writing the dictionary? There's a there's a British uh, comedy from the 90s where he's writing a dictionary. And at the end, they say, he's like, oh, do you want a sausage? And he's like, sausage? Because he's really angry because <laughs> he's missed the word sausage. And it, there was there was a bit of that when somebody's like, oh, you didn't say gonorrhea. I was like, no. So yeah, there, there are lots of holes, but hopefully not enough that it all falls apart.
0: Okay. So with your permission, last question. And this is, a, again, also a great writing, a great article. 10 simple rules to becoming a principal investigator. And one of the things that you write there is, uh, let me just quote, uh, uh, moving from doing someone else's research to getting other people to do yours, being a PI is fundamentally different jobs to being a postdoc. And it's not like a graduate student or a doctorate, it's a postdoc and postdoc usually has his own research they just happen to be in the same environment and it's not an easy transition and then you list like 10 10 simple rules about have ideas publish publish papers and many uh, many things as well and now many students and many postdocs that i know had very bad time switching from being a postdoc or even a successful postdoc to being a pi and the I, i i want to i want to just ask you about one thing the first rule which is have ideas now what is how do we ha- how do you have ideas because i thought that being a postdoc means that you need to work in part on your ideas as well so could you please elaborate just on one thing because we don't have many time could you please elaborate on on what you know about have ideas Say. I
1: think what I was trying to say is, and you're right. So the postdocs have to have ideas, but often it's within the context of a single project, or they have ideas about how to move their their single story on. You've kind of got to have a, a whole framework of ideas to support new people, to you know, some that which will go nowhere. Um, I, I, I think it's just it's the engine on which our careers, are, you know, it's, it's what we sell, isn't it? It's, you know, if we're a company, we're selling our, our ideas and the successful kind of development of those ideas. And I think without those, you can't run a group because that's your that's your main job in the group is to come up with at least the initial idea. And it doesn't have to be right, but it has to be enough that somebody else can then go and build it further.
0: So, how do you get the idea? Where, where ideas come from? Where do good ideas come from? Yes.
1: So for me, it's conferences uh, and conferences with time to step back and think uh, in between them or some space after the conferences. So I get I I get most of my ideas from talks rather than from papers, but other people get them from papers. I think you need to dedicate time uh, to thinking about things and to like and and to accept that you can spend a whole morning ha- and have nothing to show for it. But that's not a wasted morning. It's just that, that day you didn't have anything to show for it. So its it doesn't just happen. I think some, you have to put the time in and then you also have to leave the gaps in between. I think your sub- one subconscious does a lot of the heavy lifting, but it needs to have the kind of input in and then it grinds through it somehow and then stuff pops out at the other end. So a, a range of different things. Uh, exercise helps me as well.
0: I'm I'm having tomorrow on the show Professor Barbara Oakley, and she is the author of like the most views, uh, massive open online course in the history, learning how to learn, and she heavily discussed, you know the the difference between focused and diffused mode and the importance of diffused mode in learning, like this like wasted morning is not wasted because mm. something is built. your unconscious and finally you get it in the shower you get it in the conference you get this aha moment but this aha moment is built upon many many wasted mornings so uh,
1: and and it it comes back to stephen king with the the writing things the same the right where he talks about writing with the door closed and then edit with the door open it's that same. there is similarities in that creative versus editing kind of mindset in ideas as well i think so hopefully the two bits kind of feed into each other.
0: Professor John Tregoning, it was an extremely pleasure having you today. And it's, you, you are not just a colleague in, in the context of academia and science, you're also a colleague in the context of book writing. And let me, uh, let me please hope that this is not will be your last book and you will continue to publish science book for the audience, for the lay public. Thank you so much it's been a pleasure thank you so much for your time thank you it was really enjoyable okay bye-bye. bye bye אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהאורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת איתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו, ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם לערוץ, שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט עוד אנשים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם והדבר האחרון אם אתם יכולים דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות ומאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה.